Good morning. It's uh, great to see so many out this morning. The Lord is really good, isn't he, in blessing us with the ability to meet together again in this way. I'm very much looking forward to looking at the book of Romans once again. So if you have a Bible with you, do turn to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. And we're going to start reading at verse 1. Just before I read, let me just ask for the Lord's blessing. Heavenly Father, as we turn to your word, please would you speak to us through it. Please would you bless us by it. Give us ears ready to listen, hearts ready to understand. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 14 and verse 1. And it says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live... We live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be both Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves." But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. 
I just want to paint a little illustration here as we begin about a couple of types of believer who potentially are betrayed in this passage. Let's think about Anna to begin with. Anna became a Christian from a Jewish background, and she'd grown up strictly adhering to the dietary laws of the Old Testament. She remembered as a child hearing the stories of Daniel, and she admired Daniel's boldness and bravery as he refused to defile himself with the king's food in the face of this terrible and powerful Babylonian regime. And so for Anna, as she heard those stories, she was determined not to defile herself in that way. In fact, the idea of eating food that wasn't kosher, it kind of made her recoil in horror. That was a really ugly thing for her. And Anna became a Christian, and now she's part of the church in Rome, and she's still determined not to eat anything that doesn't align with the Jewish food laws. And she felt the best way to to do that was to actually live her life as a vegetarian. Also at the church in Rome was Lucilia, and she came from a Gentile background. She'd grown up in Rome, and she'd enjoyed uh, cooking. Uh, Some of the different Roman cuisine I looked up consisted of things like rabbit, hare, and wild boar that would have been sold at the local market. And before she came to Christ, she lived a, a pretty hedonistic lifestyle. Um, But the Lord had transformed her. He'd done an amazing work in her, and she joined the church in Rome alongside Anna. However, Lucilia still loved eating meat. She still loved going down to the market and buying her wild boar and rabbits and so on. And she didn't see any issue with that. In fact, she hadn't even heard any Bible teaching that said she shouldn't eat meat. And she couldn't understand why Anna made such a big deal out of being a vegetarian. What was the problem here? And unfortunately, in recent weeks, they'd even started to argue about it. They started to quarrel. Anna cast judgment on Lucilia for her meat eating. She hasn't changed, she said to herself. She's just as liberal as she always was, just as hedonistic. Meanwhile, Lucilia looked down at Anna for not appreciating the freedom that she had in Christ. She hasn't changed, she said to herself. She's still so religious, so pious, trying to earn God's favor through her good works. And unfortunately, things had grown quite ugly between them over an issue that, yes, while important, was not an essential tenet of the Christian faith. And maybe as you hear me talking about these issues, you're thinking, well, there's other issues like that which, while important, are not central to the Christian faith. I was trying to think of a few. Maybe it's whether we work or play sport on Sundays, what kind of activities we do on the Lord's Day or whether Christians should drink alcohol. That's another significant question, isn't it? Maybe what version of the Bible we read from, that can be a real issue of contention, can't it? The kinds of movies or TV shows we should or shouldn't watch as Christians. Maybe the style of worship or praise we adopt in church. And yeah, in some ways, like these are theologically significant issues. We can bring theology to bear on these things theological principles, and that's important, absolutely. But they're not non-negotiable core doctrines, are they? These are not the essentials. It's possible for Christians to have different views on these issues and still be Christians. And that's not the case with many of the matters we've considered so far in the book of Romans, is it? I I thought about some of the massive theological weighty truths we've, we've considered. Think back to Romans 3 where Paul writes, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Wow, that is indisputable, isn't it? Essential 
to our faith. Romans 4, Christ died for sins and rose again. That is integral, that is fundamental to what we believe. The deity of Christ, Romans 9, speaks of that absolutely paramount. What about how we actually become Christians? Romans 3 tells us it's salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. That is a core gospel matter. That is the only way we can possibly be saved, isn't it? And when it comes to those kind of issues, there's no room, no room for diversity of opinions. God's word is crystal clear. On these matters, we have to hold to what scripture says. But then there are these other issues that the Bible is less explicit on. It doesn't tell us maybe necessarily the exact practice or position we should adopt. And as I mentioned, it's not that these issues are unimportant. It's not that at all. They do matter. But it seems like God is comfortable for us to have a diversity of views on these non-essential issues. Yet the key, as we'll discover as we look through this passage, is that we hold those diverse views in love. So I just want to break the passage in half, split it right down the middle, and and speak under two headings. The first is Christian love is not judgmental, and that will take us from verse 1 to verse 12. Christian love isn't judgmental. And secondly, Christian love doesn't stumble others, from verses 13 to 23. Christian love isn't judgmental. Let's think about that first. The gospel Paul has outlined so far in Romans, I'm sure you'll agree, I hope you'll agree, it's been glorious, hasn't it? The gospel brings together people from every tribe and tongue and nation, every class and creed and culture, and it unites them under the cross. The cross of Christ is the ultimate unifier of people from such a diverse range of backgrounds. And the goal is that together we might with one voice glorify the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing that unifies like the gospel. Remember back to the first two chapters of Romans. In chapter one, we learned about these lawless hedonists. And they were people who suppressed the truth by their wickedness. And we read their foolish hearts were darkened. God gave these people over to their sinful desires. And they fell in this downward spiral, degrading their bodies and engaging in shameful lusts. Then in chapter two, we read about another group of people. And they were the moral or ethical Gentiles. They uh, were people who who appeared to do what was right. They they appeared to be morally upstanding citizens. Yet we learn they were very quick to judge the sin of others. And actually, Paul calls them out as hypocrites because while they judged, they did the very same sins themselves. That was group number two. And then finally, we read of a third group in the second half of chapter two, the religious Jews. And they were people who had the law, this objective measure of right and wrong, and so they acted like they were guides for the blind, like they were lights for those in the darkness. Yet they also failed to teach themselves, Paul writes. They did the very things they taught others not to do, and they cared more about the outward appearance than the weightier matters of the heart. And from each of these three groups, people became Christians. From these diverse groups, people came to faith in Christ. They repented of their sins and trusted the Lord Jesus and his finished work at the cross. And so they became part of the church, part of the same body. So so imagine now for a moment, people who'd live radically different lives, who'd been part of radically different cultures, who'd even worshiped different gods, who'd had different standards of morality, who'd eaten different foods, who'd had different cultural festivals. Imagine them coming into one body, the church. Imagine them coming together, 
seeking to praise the Lord with one voice. I imagine there had been plenty of cultural baggage that they'd brought with them. And I was trying to think, what does that look like for us? Well, today we see people from a Muslim background or a Buddhist background or a Catholic background or a secular European background or a working class background or a middle class background. You fill in the gap. We see them being saved and coming into the same church. How does it work? Because like it or not, we all bring certain cultural prejudices along with us, don't we? We're all shaped by our culture and experience. And that's why chapter 14 is so important for us. It's not detached, as you may initially think, because it teaches us how we strive for unity despite our cultural hang-ups and prejudices. When we look at the details of chapter 14, we see there is this issue, this issue of quarreling, this issue of judging. And unfortunately, it got so bad that Christians were even causing one another to stumble into sin. And the question arose as I read it, has the gospel failed? Because it's meant to unify people. It's meant to bring people together. Has it failed? Well, Paul's response would be, of course not. It's that Christians aren't living by the light of the gospel. And so in this chapter, he gets very specific in applying the gospel correctly to their circumstances. He teaches them what a gospel-saturated life looks like regarding these types of dispute. Let's look specifically at the disputes they were having. Uh, the disagreement concerned diet and dates. Diet and dates, let's briefly consider each in turn. So verse two, glance down at verse two. One person believes he made anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Clearly, at the church in Rome, there were questions about the types of food it was permissible to eat. And those who ate only vegetables probably came from a religious Jewish background. They lived with these dietary restrictions and regulations, and now living in a largely Gentile environment felt very cautious about eating food that wasn't kosher. Those Bible scholars among you will think uh, of Corinthians at this point, and you'll say, wasn't there a similar situation there? And it seems in that instance, it was slightly different, actually. It was those believers who'd previously worshipped idols who were now uncomfortable about eating food offered to such idols. And I thought that was really striking because it shows that both Jews and Gentiles can have certain cultural hang-ups about diet depending on cultural background and experience. The Jews because of kosher laws and the Gentiles because of their previous idolatry. And what that says to me is that regardless of our cultural background, we can bring certain baggage into the church. Every culture needs to be corrected by the gospel. Note that Paul uses quite a strong term when he refers to the people who were abstaining from meat. He calls them weak. And if you're a vegetarian and you're feeling uncomfortable uh, right now, don't worry. Uh, it's not a dig at vegetarians. It's rather a statement about the faith of those who abstained. And I want to be really clear at this point because Paul is sympathetic to the people he calls weak in this chapter. Uh, he's not attacking them. In fact, most of his challenge is actually directed towards the strong believer. But you see, the reason these believers were weak in faith is they thought their abstinence helped ensure they remained morally clean. But as you know, the gospel that Paul has outlined throughout Romans so far has made very clear that only Christ can make us clean. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we are cleansed and made right in the sight of a holy God. And therefore, whether we eat meat or don't eat meat has absolutely no impact on our standing or cleanness before God. 
And so these weak believers actually were free to eat meat. They didn't need to have these scruples or hesitancy. They didn't need that. And so their their faith was weak, Paul says. And it's really important to say as well, it's not that they weren't Christians. It wasn't they had embraced a false gospel. Paul wouldn't have been so sympathetic if that was the case. It was rather they hadn't yet appreciated the fullness of their salvation in Christ. And it often takes time, doesn't it, for the implications of our salvation to get fully worked out in our lives. I'm sure we'd all acknowledge that as Christians. Gradually we grow in our knowledge and understanding. What about dates then? Verse 5, look down at verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Some Christians in Rome felt certain days were more sacred than others. Again, this is likely to have been Jewish believers. They'd have grown up keeping festivals like the Day of Atonement or Passover, and on a weekly basis, of course, they'd have kept the Sabbath. Yet now they were part of the same body as Gentile believers who'd grown up keeping pagan festivals, and they wouldn't have wanted anything to do with such occasions any longer. They'd considered all days alike and none more special than any other. And so there's this clash, isn't there? There were quarrels over these non-essential matters. Verse 3 tells us how they were behaving. Paul writes, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. The strong Christians who rightly understood that eating meat was not going to hinder their relationship with God, they were despising looking down on the Christians who abstained. The weak Christians, meanwhile, looked at those who ate and they cast judgment on them. They considered them less spiritual, less righteous, less acceptable in the sight of God. And so Paul seeks to apply the gospel to this quarrel and he urges them to do three things. Firstly, he tells them to remember the Lord is the judge and they are not. The Lord is the judge and they are not. Whenever we're quarreling in the church about non-essential matters, we do well to apply these three principles. The Lord is the judge and they are not. Look at verse four. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. In effect, Paul is saying here, who do you think you are? Who are you to take the place of God? You don't determine whether a person is clean or not before the Lord with regard to these non-essential matters. That's not your place. It's not your responsibility. Verse 10, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Verse 12, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. All Christians individually are accountable to God. He is the judge. So we should never try and take his place. And what does that mean? Well, if you think John is being legalistic by not watching that movie or TV show that you happily watch, that's okay. You can think that, but don't look down on him. Don't despise him. If you think Martha is too liberal by reading that particular version of the Bible, okay, that's your opinion, but don't cast judgment on her. These are disputable matters. They're not the essentials. That's principle one. Principle two Paul tells the Christians to remember the Lord has welcomed the brother or sister with whom they disagree. Verse three, don't despise, don't judge, for God has welcomed him. That's a real gut punch, I think. That brother or sister you refuse to welcome, they've already been welcomed by the Lord. So what gives you the right then to not welcome them as a brother or sister? Do you have some kind of higher standard than God has? 
Well, of course you don't, or you shouldn't. You shouldn't think you do. Your calling is to welcome your brother or sister, no matter whether they're weak or strong in the faith, welcome them in love. And that doesn't mean tolerating them. In our society, tolerance uh, is a big thing, and it's more of a begrudging acceptance, isn't it, of someone's presence. But that's not what the Lord calls us to. Welcoming looks like, well, what does he do to us? He, he welcomes us with tender kindness, with gracious affection. He welcomes us into his family, to the family dinner table. And likewise, we're called to welcome our fellow believer. Thirdly, Paul tells these quarreling Christians to examine themselves. Verse five, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. I thought this was a really interesting and significant point because Paul is basically saying, make sure you know what you believe about these matters. Become fully convinced in your own mind. And it's interesting because Paul isn't saying these matters are, they don't, it's not really a big deal, just be apathetic about them, don't care too much, just, you'll, you'll all get along if you care less about these things. He's not saying that at all. He's saying the opposite. He's saying actually spend time getting to know what you believe about these matters. Spend time working out what you think. Search the scriptures, spend time in prayer. And the main thing we need to become convinced of as we do that is whether or not our behavior honors the Lord. Can we do that thing and give thanks to God for it? Can we watch that movie or TV show and give thanks to God for it? Can we drink alcohol and give thanks to God for it? Can we play sport or do that activity on a Sunday and give thanks to God for it? Does what we're doing or abstaining from doing bring honor to the Lord? And that's the most critical question we can ask because verse eight, for if we live, we live to the Lord and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. The point is that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. He died so that might be possible. He died so that you might live for him. So ensuring that his honor is the primary motivation for all we do is paramount. In anticipation of that day, we give an account to him. Okay, let's quickly move on into the second half of our chapter. We've seen that Christian love isn't judgmental. In the second half of our chapter, we learn that Christian love doesn't stumble others. Paul has told the Romans not to judge one another, but what does that look like in practice? How does that work itself out? Well, let's think back to Anna and Lucilia. Remember, Anna didn't want to eat meat because she felt she was going against the Lord in doing so. Lucilia, in contrast, loved eating meat and could give thanks to God for it as she ate. Well, if Lucilia was to invite Anna around to her house for a dinner party, would it be loving or kind to serve up a pot roast of wild boar? What do you think? Of course it wouldn't. Anna would be grieved by the situation, wouldn't she? Um, but does that mean then that, that, that Lucilia can never eat meat in any context? No, it doesn't. It means that she could eat meat with her Gentile Christian friends on another occasion, discreetly, sensitively. In Christ, she does have the freedom to do so. What about us? Let's think about issues that specifically affect us. Maybe you have no moral issue drinking alcohol. You can do so with a clear conscience and you can give thanks to God for it. But should you invite a Christian who doesn't drink alcohol to a bar to watch the rugby while you sit and drink a pint? Should you serve them alcohol at a meal 
What about a Christian who struggles with gambling or has previously struggled with gambling? Should you have a games night where you play cards or poker, even if you're just using fake money? Is that something you should do? What about a Christian from a Muslim background? Should you uh, invite them for, for a day at the beach with all your friends when you know their sense of, sense of modesty might be a lot more conservative than yours? Should you dress casually to go to church when you know that some brothers or sisters there find it hurtful or disrespectful? Verse 13, therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. I think this is such a powerful section. What Paul is saying here is that instead of thinking about how we can exercise our freedom in Christ for our own pleasure, the Christian way to do things, the loving way to do things, is actually to be willing to limit our freedom in Christ for the sake of our brothers and sisters. And so you're free to eat meat or drink alcohol or play sport on a Sunday or go to a bar or have a games night or a beach day. You're free. But don't do it, says Paul, to the detriment of your brother or sister. To paraphrase Paul, if they are grieved by what you do, you are no longer walking in love. By what you do, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Christian love always puts others first. We learned that back in Romans 12 where Paul wrote, be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves. And it might sound obvious, like we all know we're meant to put others first. But how often do we just exercise our own freedom with no regard for our brothers and sisters? In fact, maybe we even look down on them. I've been guilty of this myself, I'll acknowledge. And think if only they knew the freedom they have. Why are they living such constrained, limited lives? Let me model this freedom for them. Paul says, no, don't be like that. Don't live like that. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. This is serious, isn't it? And notice the the remarks he's making are largely aimed at the strong, those who rightly understand the cleanness they have in Christ. Paul says, you're free, but don't dare cause a weaker brother to go against their conscience. Don't ever cause them to sin against God, even in their own minds. So if you're gonna serve alcohol with a meal, I guess the challenge is make sure you know the conscience of the Christians you're serving. What a grievous thing it would be if you led someone down a path where they ended up falling into sin. If they went against their conscience once and then again and again and again. Or if you're going to watch a movie that might offend or trouble some Christians, well, firstly, make sure you can watch it to the honor of God yourself. Make sure it's not your own conscience that's desensitized to such an extent that you're numb to the sin of watching that movie or TV show. But then make sure that you're sensitive to the people you invite along. Because it would be a terrible thing, wouldn't it, if you watched a movie that caused a brother or sister to lust or sin. Or if you do play sport on Sundays, don't flaunt it in front of people you know might be uncomfortable. Don't encourage someone down a road that 
might end, end up uh, causing them to regularly play sport on a Sundays to the detriment of their church attendance. Verse 22, the faith you have keep between yourselves and God, yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself or what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Again, Paul says, examine yourself. Make sure you're doing what you do because you believe it brings honor to the Lord. If you believe it is a sin and you do it, then you have sinned. You have gone against God in your mind, even if the act itself is not sinful. And I think strong believers in this room need to be particularly aware of that. If you encourage a brother or sister to live in the freedom that you're convinced that we have, and they follow your lead in eating or drinking or doing in whatever area, and in doing so, go against their conscience, well, then you've caused them to stumble. You've led them into sin. And God will hold us accountable for that. Finally, as we close, let's make sure we keep our eyes focused on the fundamentals in the kingdom of God. Verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. This is the heart of the matter. God hasn't welcomed us into his kingdom to live self-centered lives, just to eat and drink whatever we want. It's not about us. That's not his main concern. His primary concern is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, that we might pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding to the glory and honor of Christ. We'll talk about this verse next week, but I want to read it because I think it Uh, It applies very much to, to this passage too. In chapter 15, Paul writes that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Because we are welcomed, we welcome others. So may God help us not to judge one another and never cause one another to stumble. And may we live with this principle in mind. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for welcoming us in Christ by your grace. We're so undeserving, yet we have been so richly welcomed. Christ died to reconcile us to you, Lord. He died to bring us into a united body with him, with Christ as our head. So, Lord, please help us not to quarrel. We realize we're so poor at that. Help us not to judge one another. Lord, we're bad at that too. Please help us to follow the way of Christ, to lay down our freedom that others might be built up. Lord, please, may we never cause a brother or sister to stumble. And may all we say and do be to your honor, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.